You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author, and you can listen if you're black or not black. This week on the podcast, we are discussing Wole Suinka's new novel, Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. And what we're going to do is I'm going to first read my review, which is published on the Litro Magazine website. Uh, You can find the link in the show notes. And then after reading the review, I'm going to talk about my thoughts on the novel more casually. Okay, so here we go. Can't we joke anymore? How do you think one keeps sane in this country? The question is posed to Dr. Kagari Minka at his social club after the surgeon ruined a celebratory event by chastising club members for engaging in a little gallows humor. Minka's nickname is Dr. Bedside Manners but his calm veneer is cracked irreparably after he is paid a visit by several businessmen trafficking in the acquisition and selling of human body parts for medicinal purposes. A few days after this disturbing meeting, Minka can't hold it together as his fellow petite bourgeois make light of yet another tragedy staring them in the face from the pages of the evening newspaper. Satire is inherent in the title of Wole Suyinka's novel, Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth. Anyone with a cursory knowledge of the Nobel laureate or his country of origin knows that neither the writer nor a fair number of Nigerians would refer to the country by that moniker. Would any body politic refer to its country as such? Since gaining independence from the United Kingdom, the giant of Africa has seen problems ranging from military coups, civil war, to power outages, and domestic terrorism. Soinka has lived through all of it. Decolonization, Biafran independence movements, Boko Haram. He was imprisoned in the 60s, fled the country multiple times in the ensuing decades, and, throughout it all, has remained an influential voice in Nigeria, Africa, and the world. How has he managed to do so without losing his mind? By satirizing a country rife with hypocrisy and corruption, represented in the novel by the characters of Papa Divina and Sir Gadi, respectively. Papa Divina is a religious leader, an ecumenicist, Chrislamist, Zoroastrian, who invented and reinvented himself after sojourns through West Africa and the United States. It is in the U.S. where Papa Divina, then known as Tabije, learns the American art of hucksterism and finds inspiration for his final incarnation in the Harlem preacher Father Divine. Tabije realizes the importance of good branding, thus the name change to Papa Divina and the realization that prophesite was a quote-unquote mellifluous name for a spiritual quest. Papa Divina builds his ministry, borrowing from any religion that can help him to become a skillful, creative, spiritual trafficker, and disposing of the ones that were economic basket cases, like Ariza. Before long, Papa Divina has established himself as the go-to guru in top Nigerian social circles. Papa Divina is not the only one obsessed with branding and nomenclature. Soinka's stand-in for corrupt politicians, Sir Gadi, is the Prime Minister of Nigeria, a position that hasn't existed in the country since 1966. Perhaps changing the title of the most powerful person in the land is one more safeguard against those who might not appreciate Soinka's need to poke fun at a country 
he has grown tired of trying to understand. For his part, Sir Gotti has no use for the title of Prime Minister, or His Excellency. He prefers to be called the People's Steward, an alias created after Chief Akpanga, a politician from Gotti's own party, unwittingly usurps the position of national servant when he refers to himself as such. The fallout from the slip of the tongue leads to an all-night brainstorming session for a new self-effacing honorific, as well as a Catch-22-esque trial for the innocent Chief Akpanga cast in the role of Clevenger. Why all this focus on names? Because in Soyinka's Nigeria, something is what it is called and not what it appears to be. Thus, the citizens of Nigeria are the happiest people on earth, even if they are dodging jihadists trying to behead them at bus stops or policemen trying to extort them on the perpetually clogged roads of Lagos. The politicians, their pockets bulging from the withdrawal of funds from the nation's coffers, are salt-of-the-earth public servants competing for the yeomen of the year and common touch awards. Of course, those awards for the unassuming, incorruptible servants of the people are celebrated at costly fiestas, local and national, that allow citizens to revel in their happiness and prosperity. No need to believe what you read in foreign newspapers or see on your way home from work. Who are you going to believe? The people's steward or your lying eyes? Duyole Pitten Payne is one of those who chooses to believe the latter. He is an engineer, the scion of a powerful and rich family, and the creator of the carefully named Brand of the Land. His friend group from his university days, which he punnily dubbed Gong of Four, includes the aforementioned Dr. Manga, another Nigerian citizen who can't quite understand how to be happy. This puts them at odds with Sir Gadi and his spiritual advisor, Papa Divina. Sir Gadi versus the Gong of Four is ostensibly the central conflict in the book, but for much of the novel that conflict is subterranean. There are interactions between the principal characters, but less time is spent on plot development and more on describing the current and past Nigerian milieu. With each new character, the novel feels congested, like the Lagos traffic Swainka continually bemoans, and weighed down by introductions and side stories. Swainka ventures down off-roads and byways, taking every opportunity to point out gross contradictions and absurdities. He is the tour guide for the last 60 years of Nigerian history. And there is so much to see. Instances of falsification, atrocity, and criminal neglect. Unfortunately, these detours often come at the expense of the plot. The funny anecdotes and insightful observations more often than not disrupt a narrative rather than add to it. Those disruptions result in part one of the book being around 200 pages longer than part two. Due to the various asides, the story really begins a third of the way through the novel, when Dr. Manka loses his bedside manners at the hilltop mansion. The chapter is indicative of what happens throughout the book. Soenka sets the scene. Menka is the poor villager from Gumshi who has worked his way up the professional ladder, accepted his government post in Jaws, and now is being honored with the Independence Day Award of preeminence. He is surrounded by people who have less humble beginnings and less day-to-day -day interaction with the world to which Menka is exposed. It is Menka who treats the physically marred victims of Boko Haram, and so he cannot join in their mirth when the club treasurer, Kufeji, reads aloud an account of a killing of a housewife by 13 ritual gang members. Menka stews, his ire rising, as Kufeji reads the report egged on by friends and passers-by. Soyinka builds the scene, priming it for explosion, 
but before it comes to fruition, the chapter flashes back to make a stressful day. The interlude goes on for pages. Slowly, the tension begins to ebb. By the time the narrative is resumed, it has all but dissipated. Eventually, Manka does unload on the club members, but only in fits and spurts, struggling to get his point across before deciding that he's had enough and calling quits on the whole affair. Manka's momentum and the scenes had stalled. The end of the chapter is acceptable, but lacks the satisfying climax that could have been. The crux of the matter is that after 60 years of independence, Soyinka has more to say than ever. He's bursting at the seams with critiques and condemnations. There is a story to be told about the Gong of Four, but inevitably, in telling that story, he finds reason to mention that Sani Abacha has a hospital named after him, or that the Maitatsane were the uncredited predecessors to Boko Haram. It is Joyce recreating the streets of Dublin from memory while in self-imposed exile. Only Soyinka has returned home, more than once, and what he has seen has left him at a loss. As Pitan Payne says after reading about a separate gruesome event in the newspaper, quote, This is different. This, let me confess, reaches into a word I would rather avoid but can't. Soul. It challenges the collective notion of soul. Something is broken, beyond race, outside of color or history. Something has cracked, can't be put back together. One can almost hear the author wondering aloud if Nigeria can recover from this fracturing of the spirit. Chronicles from the Land of the Happiest People on Earth does not allow the reader to escape the history and reality of Nigeria today. The reader is strapped in and exposed to Nigeria as Soyinka sees it. You can laugh to keep from crying, but you'll have to see it all the same, as Soyinka tilts reality ever so slightly to showcase how mad his world has become. The book is bursting with humor and irony, and there is much to be admired in Soyinka's writing and use of language. Unfortunately, those elements are scattered across a disjointed narrative weighed down by side stories and a strenuous history. There is, however, value in simply being exposed to Soyinka's viewpoints and wisdom. Riding along with Soyinka, there will be points of interest, but more than once, the question will inevitably bubble to the surface. Where are we going? So that review appears in Leecho Magazine, and you can check it out even though you've just listened to it. It would be good if you clicked on it, too. Go, go click on that. That'll help. So from the review, you got the basic overview of the plot. It really, the story does kind of, and I hesitate to use this word, meander a bit while it establishes the, the main characters, who are Papa Divina, Sir Gotti, Pitten Payne, Duole Pinton Payne, and Dr. Manga. There are a couple other characters besides, because it's the gong of four, right? So Pitten Payne and Manga are only two of the four. So there are a couple other characters, they just don't factor as much as, as those two do. And basically the plot follows the career trajectory of Divina, and Gotti is already kind of established, so we just kind of follow Divina's rise to religious guru status, and then Payne and Manga kind of off to the side doing their own thing. They're not really agitators, but they don't fall in line as much as perhaps they should. So that that's really it for the conflict. It's not really huge. And then in the second half of the book, and I don't want to give anything away, like I said, the second half of the book is much shorter than the first half. So the plot is um, accelerated in the second half of the book. The conflict there makes uh, more sense and is a little bit more streamlined and all the characters are already set up. But so 
the characters themselves are interesting. Like I said, Divina is kind of this representation of hypocrisy. And I was happy to see he models himself after Father Divine because I only know of Father Divine through Chester Himes, who's a novelist that everybody should read if you like pulp fiction, if you like detective stories, or if you just like good books, you should go check out Chester Himes and um, Cotton Comes to Harlem is a good one, and A Rage in Harlem, and I can't remember the other ones, but at least those two are good. I've read all of them, I just can't remember them right now. But anyway, he talks about Father Divine in his books, so I was familiar with them, and that was a nice little thing. And then Sir Gotti is a solid character who's kind of the representation of... um, corruption in Nigeria. And so Swayinka uses these two characters to kind of point out, you know, two big problems in Nigerian society today. One, spiritual leaders who take advantage of people. And then two, corrupt politicians who push forward their agenda or use spiritual leaders or use this thing or that thing in order to get their way. Uh, specifically in the book, he's using um, Pitten Payne, he's putting him into the um, UN. So the UN needs some representative from Nigeria. And Gotti thinks, oh, great, we'll use Pitten Payne, one, people like him, and two, if he's out of the country, he won't bother me while he's here. Uh, he won't bother me as much as he does when he's in the country. But again, Pitten Payne's not really an agitator. He's just kind of, I would say, more of a, what do you call it, a fly in the ointment kind of thing. So he's not trying to overthrow the government or protesting against the government. He's more just not falling in line as much as he should. And then, uh, so those are the two two big characters used for satirizing the establishments of Nigeria. Pidden, Pain, and Manga, they're not used to satirize as much as uh, we're supposed to empathize with them. But I would say overall, what is this book about? It's not really about... Pit and Pain or Manga, their journeys or arcs. It's not about uh, Papa Divina, his arc. It's not about Gadi or his arc. It's about Nigeria. That's what this book is about. It is about Nigeria. And reading it, you'll learn a ton about Nigeria. So as a kind of cultural artifact and informed critique of Nigeria over the last 60 years, it is a fascinating book. And the humor and the irony and the satire work. So as I pointed out in my review, I really enjoy, for instance, the little Catch-22 style trial of um, Chief Akpanga. One, this trial is funny because it shows how Sir Gotti is like trying to manipulate public perception by calling himself the national servant. So that's great. Then when he's undone by... Chief Akpenga, who wasn't trying to undo him, he just, he had heard the term national servant from Sir Gotti, thought, oh, okay, we're all servants then, I'll use that term. And then, you know, he, he unwittingly gets himself on the wrong side of, uh, of Sir Gotti. So Sir Gotti uses politics to push Chief Akpenga out. And then the trial itself, the way it's presented, they read a transcript in the book. Uh, so it's kind of like, um, kind of reads like a, like a script or a play. Uh, it's just very funny dialogue. So that is really a masterful scene that does a lot of stuff. It's, it's showing the corruption of the government. It's showing the political maneuvering of government figures. And then it's just Soyinka's ability to build a scene and um, really get humor across. Probably my favorite scene in the book or one of my favorite scenes in the book. There's a couple different scenes involving, involving Chief Akpenga. And 
each one is great. So that stuff is really good. And there's tons of that throughout the book. And, you know, like I said, he goes down these byways or side roads and whenever he does, they're really funny. So like the, the scene which talks about the, um, the policeman, well, I don't want to give away any of the plot, but the, the traffic situation, there's several traffic situations, but there's one in particular, I reference it at the end where Pitt and Payne is reading about in the newspaper. There's a traffic situation with a police officer that is particularly mm, violent. Okay. And that is just really funny. Uh, there's another one at the airport. Don't want to give it away because it's in the second half of the book. That's really funny. So there's tons of humor throughout the book. Okay. The humor, the satire, the irony, the critique of Nigeria, the presentation of Nigeria, all of that stuff, spot on. The parts that don't work for me are just the plot of the book is just almost non-existent. Not the story. The story's there, but the plot, the thing moving the story along, very nearly non-existent, which is fine. You don't have to have a book with a plot. That's not the goal of many writers who are especially working in what we you know, call literary fiction, right? Which is what Swink is working in. So he doesn't have to have a plot. I think when a novel doesn't have a plot, what we want is to be entertained to the point where we, not, we don't care that we don't have a plot. And there are very entertaining parts of this book, as I just went through. I'm not going to go back over them again. So for a while, you definitely are entertained, and there are parts here or there where that's entertaining, that's entertaining, that's entertaining. But for a 400 and I think it's 50 or maybe 460 page book, it's tough to keep that up the whole time without the story moving along a little bit quicker. You know, you really, really, really have to be very, very, very entertaining for that to work. And um, it's mostly entertaining. But there are definitely parts where it lulls and doesn't flow quite as well and kind of drags a bit. Or maybe there are times where we veer off into a side road and you're thinking, you know, we could just go straight. This, some, some of these byways are interesting, you know, out, these out of the off the beaten path spots that you're taking me to are cool. But this one, I could zoom past it. So um, that, that would be the only problem with the book. Other than that, I have to say that I was very excited to read this book. I'd never read anything by Wole Soyinka. As I said in the um, as I said in the African Intellectuals podcast a couple podcasts ago, it is true that, or at least it was when that book was written. It was true then, and maybe it's still true now, that a lot of Black Americans don't know African intellectuals or African celebrities. And I will confess to not having even heard of Wole Soyinka until a couple of months ago. And having never read any of his work at all. So it was really great to get to read this and review it. And it wasn't even my idea. I was asked to do it. So it was really, you know, a blessing. And I really enjoyed reading it and reviewing it. It was a fun book to get through. A bit of a challenge. And yeah, at times a little slow. But overall, it was great to be exposed to it. And it immediately piqued my curiosity, uh, sparked my interest, and I went to YouTube and started watching videos about Biafran independence, which I only vaguely knew about. I think most people have heard of the Nigerian Civil War, but did I really understand the, the things uh, around it, the, the reasons why it happened? No, I didn't. So it was definitely an informative book and an interesting book. As a novel, it has plot issues, 
but as just a piece of writing, there's a lot to be admired and there's a lot of interesting things going on in the book. So if you're up to the task of reading it, it's 450 pages. If you're up to the task of reading it, there's value in reading it. But I will say, because uh, I don't want to lie, I will say that there are parts that are going to slow you down. You're going to be slowed by it. You're going to think, I wish this was moving a little bit quicker. <laughs> um, and that's just, that's just the fact of the matter. But doesn't take away from the parts of the book that are interesting. All right, that's going to do it for today. I recorded this podcast in advance because I wrote the review back in August, but the book isn't coming out until September, so the review is not coming out until September. So this is pre-recorded. I have no idea what I'm going to be reading next week, uh, presumably a book and something by a black author. That's what we know for sure. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.